Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see, help us to see this great... um, this great theological transition that we witness in Romans chapter 5 from a a place of faith, from instruction on faith and how, how we do that, to an instruction on life that is rooted in your great love for people. Father, this transition that moves from love to life that is rooted in your love, a love for people when they were enemies, a love for people when we didn't want anything to do with you. Your love astounds us. It amazes us, God. And I just ask that you would help us to understand this great great move that you're teaching us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Romans chapter 1 through 4, we've, we've made quite a journey, actually. We've made quite a journey. In Romans chapter 1, Paul has shared with us the, um, the condition of humanity, the broken condition of humanity, that we as people, uh, Jew and Gentile alike, but that we as people had worshipped created things and not, and not the creator. Okay, so we, we made lots of idols in life. We made lots of things stand uh, as God in our life, and we bowed down to them. We worshiped them. And some of those things, of course, in Old Testament times and ancient times, were statues of wood and gold and metal and all of those things. But in modern times, those things become people. Those things become houses. They become cars. They become self in many ways. And so we, just like everybody else, had fallen short. And Scripture says in Romans 1, it says that because we had chosen to uh, worship created things and not the creator, God gave us over to a depraved mind. 
So we, we clearly, by logic, we clearly had the ability to look to him. We could see in all creation who he was and what he was. And we are without excuse, make no mistake. The stars and the sky declare the glory of God. We have no excuse. But what we did was we replaced God with other things. And so we began to worship that. And God said, fine, have it your way. Fine, have it your way. And he gave us over to a depraved mind. And here's what happens when we are are given over to that depravity, when we're given over to that brokenness. We get creative with sin. How many of you know that? We get really creative with sin. And all of a sudden, we're doing things that are completely and, uh, and totally unnatural according to the way God has made us, both biologically and uh, scripturally, okay? And so we do lots of things. So chapter 1 declares this truth about us. Chapter 2, Paul goes in and he says, listen, even the Jewish people who had the law of God are no better. Now, do they have an advantage? Of course they do. God spoke to them. He gave them the word. He gave them the prophets. He gave them dreams and visions and all of these beautiful things pointing them in the right direction. But what was their problem? They ignored it. They ignored it. They had much advantage, but they weren't special. All people everywhere had begun to worship created things and not the creator. So then we roll into Romans chapter 3, and Paul says, so here's the verdict. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, those with the promises of God and those without God in the world. So all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But then he not only uh, proposes the verdict on all people in Romans chapter 3, but he also proposes the solution. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a comma at the end of that, leading into verse 24. And by the way, you, you need to remember that we added chapter and verse numbers to the Bible. And the reason why you need to remember that is because sometimes we break the Bible up in sections that it doesn't break itself up into. Okay? So there are times when you change from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and Paul creates a new idea. But there are also times where chapter, many times, where chapter 1 flows into chapter 2 and you need to keep the thought going, especially with the Apostle Paul because he's the master of run-on sentences. And so you end up in three, three chapters later with one huge sentence <laughs> and you're going, what is he talking about? Okay, so, so we had this. But 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 24 says this. It's such a powerful verse. It says, comma, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here's the verdict, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the solution, all have been shown mercy. All have been shown mercy through the one act of Jesus Christ on the cross. So Romans 3 tells us the the verdict on man, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin are death, and then it tells us what the solution is. It is the mercy of God. It is only the mercy of God. And what's so beautiful about that is is the very point of the scripture. The reason why it comes by grace is because it it humbles all of us, doesn't it? I don't get, like a Jew, a Jewish person doesn't get to stand before God and say, yeah, but I was a Jew, so ha, this is awesome. You loved me because I was. 
No, 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 no. Nothing in you. Nothing in you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it humbles, it, it creates. Sin is the great equalizer. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we're all on the same playing field. We're all in desperate need of God to act. Then in chapter 4 of Romans, uh, Paul begins to tell us how grace is accessed inside of our life. And this, to me, church, this is where the story of God uh, is just beautiful. It's just amazing. And it gives me peace. It gives me the ability to rest. The, The grace of God is accessed because faith. It is accessed through faith, not because of your work. Not because of you wrangling your, you know, your, your life and getting it in order and, and presenting yourself to God as this awesome sacrifice. No, remember what Romans 12 says. In view of mercy, you present yourself as a living sacrifice. That's an order issue, but it is all by faith. So guess what you get to do? Jesus says, I'm going to save you. I am, I am going to redeem you. I'm going to make you right with God. And what, do, what is your response? I believe you. I trust you. And by the way, there's no other offers on the table, just so you know, okay, right? You, you, can't, you can't put your faith, in this respect, you can't put real faith in anything else. You can't earn yourself your way to God, and Jesus has already bought it. So what is your entrance into grace? You live by faith. But something interesting happens in chapter 5, not because it's labeled chapter 5, but something interesting happens in chapter 5. You see, in chapters 1 through 4, the term faith, the term faith, the word for faith, pistis, is used over 25 times in chapters 1 through 4. But then, in chapters 5 through 8, all of a sudden, it becomes rare in Paul's vocabulary. He actually uses the word twice. In, the, in, three, in four chapters, he uses the word twice. He has just gotten done using it over 25 times, and then all of a sudden, he drops down to using it two times. But there's another word that flips. It mirrors this. He begins to, in in chapters 1 through 4, he speaks about life. He uses the term life twice, just like he uses grace in 5 through 8, twice, right? But in chapters 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul uses the term life over 25 times. It's, it's quite crazy. Now, I'm not saying make a doctrine out of this. I'm simply saying it appears that Paul has made a shift. Paul has made a shift not to say, here's how you're justified by faith, but instead, here's how you live by faith. Here, here's what life looks like for all of us. And so when we start off chapter 5, it's breathtaking Through the filter of, he's talking about a life lived by faith. He's talking about people who live out their Christian faith and how they're supposed to do a thing, okay? So I want want to walk you through this, starting at chapter 5, verse 1, and I want to to point out some cool things. And and if I have time at the end of this, I want to wrap it all up by showing you a case study of Abraham in the Old Testament. It might end up being Joseph, depending on what my mood is at that time. Smile. Welcome to my mood. Anyway, okay, so chapter 5, starting at verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, so in light of your justification by faith, look at this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing that we all need to understand about a life lived by faith is that it is a life lived at peace with God. 
You, how many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. How many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. Guess what? If you believe him by faith, if you are Christians by faith, by the way, that's the only way to be a Christian. If you're Christians by faith, you're at peace with God. Is that astounding? Yeah. Because the one, the one who said we were enemies of him has just said, I've erased that, and you're my friend. Wow. That's intense to me. That's intense to me. So he says, you now live at peace with God. This is contrasted to verse 10 of the same chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, which says, for if while we were enemies with God, he reconciled us. Remember who you were. You were enemies with God, but now you're at peace. Do do you know what it's like to live at peace with people? You're not looking over your shoulder, are you? Do, do you look at, over your shoulder, right? This is, we tend to relate the, um, the relationship of God like a marriage, right? We, we relate this relationship like a marriage. And in a marriage where both parties love each other deeply, do both parties seek to please the other? Do they? You better answer yes or the other half of your party is going to be quite mad right now. So do you seek to please the other? Yes, but why do you do that? Because you love each other. Because you're at peace with one another. There's still actions that we do in a marriage relationship. You better give me an amen. There's still actions that we do in, not that way. Anyway, you guys are bad. Anyway, so there's actions that we do as married people. But we do so because it's predicated on love. That's what the gospel is predicated on. God's love for us. And we live at peace with each other. We're, we're not looking over our shoulder wondering when, when love is being perfected, when love is being uh, truly rooted in what the scripture says, we're not living in fear. We're not living in fear. And there are far too many Christians that actually view it that way. They're viewing their relationship with God out of, and I'm going to clarify this in just a second, they, they view their relationship with God out of a terror fear. Not out of a reverence fear, that's a good thing, but out of a terror fear. And so they live looking over their shoulder. Why should you want to please God? Why should you want to obey him? Why should you want to repent of the sins when you fall short? Why? Because he loves me. Because he showed me mercy. That's it. Not because if I don't, that's it. Just violated this whole thing, now I get tossed into hell. How How many of you know what hell was created for? For the angel, for the devil and his angels. Do you know that that hell was never created for you? Now, for those who reject God, it still becomes the punishment. But it was not meant for you. It was not meant for you. Because God wanted a people who lived by faith. So in, uh, again, in chapter, in verse 10 of the same chapter, we see that relationship where we were. In chapter 8, verse 7... It says this, it says, because the mind set on the flesh, that would be the previous man, the old man, uh, the one before redemption, before regeneration, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just a bit of clarification there. It does not talk about your inability to ever do that. I know what it said. I know it reads that way. The point is, the only way to please God is what? Faith. Not by law keeping. It never was the way to please God. So, you're not able to please God 
by law keeping. You're not able to do it. You may honor him. You may, glo- you, know, you may give glory to his name because he's a good God and he's worthy to be uh, praised and worthy to be obeyed. But you're not doing that to please him. He is pleased because of his love for you and your response by faith. That is why he's pleased with you. So verse 1 says we have peace with God. Paul, making this transition from righteousness by faith, now shares with us that faith, is, uh, faith leads to life. And a life lived by faith is a good thing. So verse 2 it says you're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Two things that you, you need to see here. First of all, what kind of grace, you need to read that over and over this week, what kind of grace are we awaiting that has as its introduction the cross? Far too many Christians talk about the cross, rightly so, Please don't get offended by what I'm about to say. They talk about the cross as the only thing in redemptive history. They talk about the sacrifice and the death of Jesus as the only thing in redemptive history. I hear people say this all the time. You have to read the Old Testament through the filter of the cross. You need to read the Old Testament through the filter of the cross, the resurrection, and the glorification of the saints that God has in store for us. That's what you you can't. Chop one without the other, okay? You can't have it this way. And so when you look at the cross, we look at this magnificent, merciful act that God does. We had a debt we owed we couldn't pay. There's a penalty for our sins. It's called death. Jesus becomes sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, and he dies on a cross. And Romans chapter 5, verse 2 says, that's just the beginning. And you're going, hold on a second. I don't really understand what we're getting into here. I don't know what we're getting into. We don't know what we're getting into. God's glorious future for us, the hope that we're looking to, is much bigger than any of us can imagine. It's much bigger. Because according to Paul, the beginning is the cross. It's the introduction to this. Wow, that is staggering to me. So grace, uh, the the ultimate goal, and many don't know this, many don't think about this, the ultimate goal for the Christian is actually glorification. Did you know that? God doesn't just save you from the cross and say, good luck. He doesn't say that. He saves you, he's molding you, he's shaping you, and in the end, what will you be? You will be like him. Wow, that's pretty powerful in my estimation. So turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 12. Look at what's said about our future hope, the, the thing that we're looking forward to. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, don't, don't misconstrue that verse. It doesn't mean that you're not under obligation to honor God. It says you're not under obligation to live according to that old dead man. That old dead flesh. You have no obligation anymore. It's dead. It's gone. Please put it away, okay? But look what he goes on to say. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are, and what is implied here, living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. And if you do that, you will live, okay? Do you know what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Stop doing that. That's what it means, right? I just, that's, just, that's simple English. Stop that. 
Stop that. Stop that. Now, it's not a stop that under a taskmaster or a rule keeper or all of these other things. It's in view of mercy. God redeemed me from that dead flesh, and, I, and he's calling me to glory. I want that put down. I want that put down. And guess what I have the ability to do? I have the ability to obey by faith now. I have the ability to obey by faith. Why? Because my salvation is secure in Jesus. My obedience is in view of it. My obedience is in light of that. I can now obey by faith, something that Old Testament believers couldn't do on law-keeping, right? Keeping them righteous, they couldn't do. Verse 14, for all who are being, did I go too far? No, no. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. In order to be led by the Spirit of God, he has to reside inside of you, and I'll get there in a little while. Verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to, say it with me, church, fear again. You have not been given a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You're at peace with God. Beautiful truth. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And for all of those who get really offended by funny words in the Bible, it simply says we cry out, Daddy, Father. That's fun to me. Anyway, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's what we need to see. The future hope that we're looking to, the the future glory whose introduction is the cross. Look at this. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There is a future glorification. There is a beautiful thing that God is going to do for us. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The suffering you deal with, the the putting to death of sin, the walking after God, the persecution you might face in this life, none of it is worth comparing to the future that you're looking for. And by the way, that future's introduction is the cross. You've got to let that sink in because it has a magnitude that I don't think we grasp right off the bat. So, Verses 1 and 2, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God, both the glory that God will receive and the glory that God gives. It's it's read both ways. Verse 3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, uh, proven character, and proven character, hope. We're back to that hope again. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so we've talked about this great glorification that we're looking We live at peace with God, amen? We live at peace with God. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of what he's done. That was that cross, that blood shed and that resurrection. It's the introduction for us into something else. And that is the glorification that we're all waiting for. The process of that glorification is where many Christians uh, uh, sneer or where many Christians bristle. 
okay? It's the process of that hope that we're looking forward to. And here's where we see it. Again, verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt, and you can read it this way, because this is what Paul is alluding to, we exalt in the process. We exalt in the process. Here's the process. Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Can I get an amen? amen. Why? What's wrong? You guys, ameners are broken today on that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We exalt in our tribulation, not because we exalt in torture. That's what we got to understand. I don't exalt in tribulation uh, because of tribulation. I exalt in tribulation because of what tribulation produces, right? Tribulation produces something. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're going to hear that Paul says this same thing to every group of people that he writes to. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. You should be familiar with this. For momentary... Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of, what is that word, church? Glory, because that's what we're hoping for. We're, we're, not, we're not just hoping for remission of sins. We're not just hoping for a new second chance on the planet earth. We're hoping for the glorification of the saints. Why? Because God promised it. God said he would do it. And so when we're doing this, here's what we do. We endure affliction, momentary light affliction, no matter what we think it is. We, we endure that because it is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. Anybody got a comparison they want to share with me? This one's beyond it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't, and it's not just beyond it, it's far beyond it, okay? So the first thing that we see is tribulation comes our way. How many of you know Jesus promised us tribulation? Trial, sorrow, persecution, brokenness. It doesn't say if they hated me, they might hate you. It says if they hated me, they will hate you. Now how they hate you is a very, very different situation. You may be hated by somebody burning you at the stake, you may be hated by somebody crucifying you on a cross. Highly unlikely. But you also may be hated by your family no longer talking to you because you stand for Jesus and you stand for what he says. You may be hated because you get fired from your workplace because you won't do the unethical thing they ask you to do. Do you understand? So, so make no mistake, you will face tribulation. But here's what's beautiful about tribulation. Tribulation results in perseverance. How many of you are perseverant people? All the moms should raise their hands, right? How many of you are perseverant? How do you know you persevered? How do you know? Because you were tried. Because something happened in your life and you pushed through it, right? See, this is, this is the problem with New Year's resolutions, we're not a perseverant people, right? <laughs> so we, we make our news. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out. And that lasts for at least the second I thought about it. And then it just goes away. I'm not perseverant. Why? Because here's what we've been taught. When pain happens, when pain hits, it's a bad thing. God doesn't want Christians to feel pain. Nonsense. Pain is one of the most beautiful teachers that you can imagine. Do you know that, that before the fall, that, that in your infant stage, you were built with pain sensors? Why? Because pain sensors tell you something's wrong. 
It's a good thing. Pain teaches you a lot of things. Tribulation teaches you a lot of things. But you must persevere through that tribulation. And tribulation will train you in perseverance, okay? So look at what happens next. It says tribulation leads to perseverance and perseverance proven character. We have this joke going on in our elders meeting where if somebody answers or somebody speaks up and they say something like super profound... Somebody chimes in and goes, ooh, they got a gold star. Ooh, they got a gold star. You remember those when you were a kid? You passed the test. You got the gold. What is wrong with you people today? Did you get gold stars or were you deprived of that? Anyway, okay, smiley face is something. Okay, so gold star, that's that's our fun thing, okay? Guess how you get the gold star? Guess how you get proven character? It has to be proved. Guess what proof is? It's testing. Guess what testing is? The mercy of God. If God didn't care what your outcome would be, he wouldn't test you. He'd just let you hope you're getting to heaven someday. He would let you live in no assurance whatsoever. This is why King David calls out to God and says, Test me, O God. Test my heart and prove it. Show what is happening to me. Show what's real of me. This is why in Deuteronomy 8, it says that God tested the Israelites in the wilderness. Why did he test them in the wilderness? Proven character. Prove their character. To prove their character. And for us, oftentimes, it's a proof of faith. Do you really trust God? Well, rest. Do you really trust God for your salvation? Well, then rest. Take a deep breath. We should do that together as a church. Let's take a deep breath. One, two, three, breathe in. Let's start a yoga class next week. Anyway, okay. Perseverance. Tribulation creates perseverance. Perseverance creates biblical terms. Proven character. In order to prove something, it has to be tested. But that proven character results in hope. That proven character results in hope. And what is the hope that you have? I will be glorified. I will be glorified because the God of the universe made a promise and I win. I like that. That's pretty fun, right? Okay, verse 4. Look at where it goes from this. Uh, And proven character and proven character hope. Verse 5, sorry. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit was poured out in our hearts. Turn to Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, Christians. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Here's when you know that you're a Christian. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Previous verse talks about the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ. It's the same thing. He does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Christ's righteousness. righteousness. Verse 11, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Guess what that life in your mortal bodies does? It gives you strength. It gives you power to persevere, to overcome, to be steadfast, to walk by faith. 
His Spirit gives that to you. And it was poured out. Why was the Spirit of God poured out to us? According to that verse, why was it poured out to us? Because of the love of God. Please don't miss it. Please don't miss it. It was because of the love of God. God loved us enough to give his very own spirit. So back to chapter 5. Back to chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We're bouncing from page to page to page. Here we go. Verse 6 through 8, I believe. Yeah, 6. Did I say 6 through 8? Yeah. 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that he didn't require you to be good. He didn't require you to be righteous before he saved you, right? He doesn't put that there. He says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Nothing good or bad inside of us. Nothing that we had done. No warrant. No benefit on our behalf. But God says, listen, people barely ever die for good people. I'm going to show you what real love is. I'm going to die for my enemies. I'm going to die for those who are enemies, who, those who are ostracized those are from me, those who are not at peace with me. I'm going to die for you out of my love, and I'm going to show you my mercy. Two passages of scripture that I think you need to know as you uh, engage with people about the character of God. The first one is in Psalms in which it says that the wrath of God, the anger of God burns every day. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11. It says that the wrath of God, the anger of God, he burns with indignation every day. Now is that scary or what? It's pretty scary, isn't it? Yes, yes. The, the same Old Testament that says that that's God's disposition towards unrighteousness says this about his disposition towards people, even if they are people who live in unrighteousness. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. It is not God's intention. It was never God's intention. It's not God's desire that the wicked should perish, but that they come to repentance. Do you want to know who God is in his character from Genesis to Revelation, he is a God of love. Why? Because he is. Why? Because he is. Is he angry? Is he frustrated with, uh, with sin? He's not frustrated like we are, that he can't do anything about it. But he's angry towards unrighteousness. Why? Unrighteousness kills you. Do you know that? He's angry towards that. The same way I'm angry when something is hurting my children. He is angry towards that. But it is never and never was God's intention for the unrighteous, the wicked, to perish. It was never his intention. He's offered salvation to them time and time and time again. And he offers it to this world time and time and time again. And they're not stuck in an inability to respond to him. They just need to believe in him. They just need to wake up. And he has called everyone to this. It does not please God to punish the wicked, but that they come to repentance. Does that mean God will never punish the wicked? No, of course not. But it doesn't bring him pleasure to do so. It doesn't bring him pleasure to do so. So how ought we to live? In whatever way is pleasing to him because he bought us. He bought us at a beautiful, beautiful price. So 
God loves us in this way. And then finally, verse 9 of chapter 5. Verse 9. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. How many of you have faith that Jesus saved you from your sins? How many of you have the same faith that you don't have to worry about his wrath? It should be the same. It should be the same. And why is your hand up? Faith. Faith in what he's done. Faith in what he's done. So, as we wrap this up today, I I wanted you to see that life lived by faith is a very important thing. And we're moving in that direction. As Christians, we're looking at what it looks like to live by faith, live by faith every day of our lives as Christians, pleasing to God, honoring him. I spoke about reverent fear before, okay? We no longer have to worry about the fear of God and the wrath of God, amen? That's awesome because of his saving grace. But does that mean we don't revere God? which is the word fear in the, in the scripture. Does that mean we don't fear? Perfect love casts out all fear. Does that mean we don't have reverence for God? Of course not. Of course not. I shared this a couple of weeks ago. We have a problem in the church. We have a tendency to think of God um, in a human lens, a human way, only one way. How many of you know that the Bible talks about God as Father and we as children? How many of you know that? How many of you know that the Bible talks about God through Christ Jesus as the groom and we the bride? How many of you know that? That's awesome. How many of you know the Bible talks about God being a friend to sinners? He's, he's a friend. How many of you, like, guess what? All of those three were like, I'm in. I'm a friend of God. I'm, well, for a guy, it's a little bit weird to be his bride, but I'm a friend of God. I'm the bride in the church. And guess what? I'm a child of God. And the scripture universally, without equivocation, never stops talking about another relationship, which is that he is creator and you are creation. He is God and you are servant. He is master and you are slave. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It keeps popping up in all of these ways. Now that leads to a lot of confusion. But what I'm trying to get at this way is that when we view God one way, we go, God would never. According to you, God would never. But according to the scripture, God wants us to live out our days. Two scriptures for you. It says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. It's already been done with fear and trembling. The word means revere God. That means when you are sinning, you should repent. That means when when God calls you to obey, jump to it. Right? Okay? And in Peter, it says, during your stay on earth, during your stay on earth, you should live in reverent fear. Reverent fear. You see, when God is my dad and I'm his kid, then I look at that and go, Daddy always loves me. Yeah, yes. Yeah, but when I remember also that the Bible says he's my God and I am his servant, I am his, I don't lose track of the fact he's always eternal. He's always king. He's always boss. He's always good. He's always love. Yes, that's true. But he's always God. And so what we have is divisions in the church split over things like this. You can't talk about God like that. Oh, yes, I can because the Bible does. You can't pigeonhole God to one way. Otherwise, you won't see all that you're called to. All that you're called to. Do we live in fear? No. But do we honor God with our lives? Yes, we do. So here's here's how I want to close. Here's how I want to wrap this up. And we'll take communion together and open the times of prayer for everybody. Abraham's life is an amazing study of faith. 
Abraham's life is an amazing study of faith, right? Abraham is called by God to leave his father, Terah, and he's called to go into a land that he doesn't have a clue what's going to happen, okay? It's like, welcome to Canaan, right? So what does he do when God calls him and promises him the land? He gets up and he goes. Well, that looks like work, Nathan. No, 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 no. His faith believed the God who called him, so he walked and he went to that land, right? His faith grew. It was quite impressive. He's in the land of Canaan. He's there with his wife. And God says, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore. He, don't make no mistake, he has no idea how it's going to play out, as we see in the story. He has no idea. He tries experimenting several ways, but he never loses faith or doubts in God. That's why Paul says he never wavered in faith and he was fully assured that God could keep his promises and would keep his promises. He's promised a child. Guess what? Isaac finally pops in. Pops out. Whatever. You know, okay. So anyway, <laughs> awesome. So anyway, so Isaac finally pops out. Everything's good. He goes, bam, this is awesome. Guess what? He grew in his faith. Not on a scale of one to 10. He didn't have one on faith of God before and now he's up to a three. That's not the point of this. He grew in faith. I trusted God in my homeland. I trusted God with my lineage, my future. I'm trusting God. That way I'm growing in faith, okay? And then guess what God says? God says, oh, oh, I want you to sacrifice your son. How many are raising their hands for that? Some days, Joe uh, needs to, anyway, okay, so that's my third, and whoo, oh, I got it, she's just like me, that's why it's so hard, anyway, okay, so anyway, so he, he's called to sacrifice his son, do you remember how this story goes, it's amazing, he grabs his son and his servants, and they go to the mountain, and when the mountain is in view, he tells his servants something very bold, he says, hey, watch the donkeys, we will be back. That's awesome. So some of us go, see, he knew the how. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Okay, we will be back. He did know he would come back because God is faithful. So, but, so he goes up the mountain. He gets up the mountain and his son asks him the logical question. Hey, dad, where's the sheep? Right, right. Where's the sacrifice? I've got a problem here because, <laughs> yeah, okay. So he goes, don't worry. What does Abraham say? God will provide a lamb. He knew the how. No, he didn't. He had no clue. Because guess what happens when Abraham gets up there? He builds the little altar and he gets everything and he goes, well, no lamb. Isaac bounds him and he puts him on that altar. Hold on a second. This is just really strange, right? He pulls the knife out. He raises it. And what happens? God says, stop. God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? Now, here's what Abraham knew before I tell you. Here's what Abraham knew. He knew that he would come back with his son somehow, but he didn't know the how. He knew that God would provide a lamb, even if the lamb was his child. Because elsewhere in scripture, it says God, he knew that God was so good, so powerful, so strong, that even if he killed his son, God could raise him from the dead. I'm telling you, Abraham had no clue how this was going to play out. But he never doubted that God would. So he raises the knife. God says, whoa. And what God says to him is he says, Abraham, now I know you have faith in me. No, no. He's walked by faith all the days of his life. Maturity, tested, proven character says this. Whoa, now I know that you fear me. 
Now I know that you fear me. Abraham is the one whose children we are if we live by faith. Remember that? The true children of Abraham are those who walk by faith. You remember all these stories in the scripture. And guess what was was Abraham's final uh, gold star on his test? Now I know that you fear me. Guys, we're saved by an immense mercy, okay? We're saved by an immense mercy. We're called to a life by faith, to a God who is God and we are creation, to a God who's father and we are children, to a God who through Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. We're, we're called to all of that. It's a really beautiful thing. We get to walk by faith all the days of our life, but we should always do so in a reverent fear because he is good, he is faithful, he is loving, he's worthy. We should shout his name because he is king, Amen. We should love him. We should do whatever he asks. Why? Because he's the only one who saves us. He's the only one who makes us righteous. He's the one who makes us good. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.